You don't start most days talking to a dame, and that's exactly how I have started my day, speaking to Dame Stephanie Shirley, also known as Steve, but you're going to have to listen to the podcast to know why. Dame Stephanie's story is literally nothing but unbelievable, and to really hear firsthand what she did for us women, but also how future thinking this remarkable woman was, is outstanding. She might as well have created the gig economy in the early 60s when still women couldn't open a bank account without their husband's signature. She's funny, she's enlightening, soulful, and it is one of those conversations where I know I got a bit tongue-tied in the podcast, but I know that I'm probably going to play this every single week and learn something new every single time. So get pen to paper. This is quite an extraordinary story. Tissues definitely required at the end. And let's all campaign for a Dame Stephanie Shirley Day. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street from my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. So firstly, a huge welcome to you, Dame Stephanie. What an honour it really is to meet you. I've just spoken about how I was telling my son, Harry, over breakfast, who I was going to be interviewing. We were almost speechless and he was wondering why they aren't learning about yourself and what you've done for women in their classes. And he takes business as well. So welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you, Holly. It's very nice to be here. I'd love to get started today right at the beginning because your life has been a pretty extraordinary life. It's been a very long one, don't forget. It's been a long one, but it started in the most extraordinary way. Before we get started, I'm going to refer to you as Steve. Is that right? Yes, I like to be called Steve, and that takes me back to the days when um, I was starting to write sales proposal letters, and uh, my my letters were getting completely ignored. And uh, my late husband suggested that I move from this double feminine of Stephanie Shirley, Shirley being my marital name, to the, the family nickname of Steve. And so I've been Steve Shirley ever since, and that's what, how I really like to be called. I love that. I love that. So, Steve, you were born in Germany in 1933, just as the Nazis were coming to power. Your Jewish father lost his post as a judge, and at just the age of five, your mother took the heartbreaking decision to put you and your sister on the kinder transport train to London to escape Nazi Europe. 
What are your memories of this time? Because it's an exceptionally young time to be uprooted. Yes, People rather expect me to have memories of the, what was going on in the politics or, or, or things like that. But, of course, my memories are of a five-year-old. Yeah. Are there memories of a lost doll rather than the lost home? Are there memories of a little boy who kept being sick every time the train made an unscheduled stop? You know, he would be vomiting. My memories are not of any historical import at all. What they underline is the sheer trauma of having a break in your childhood like that, where you suddenly are finding yourself in a new country with new language, new food, new parents, new everything. And suddenly you've got to survive um, with this when, especially the language difficulty, it was, uh, uh, I can remember a journey back from Liverpool Street Station to uh, the Midlands where um, my foster parents um, uh, lived. They didn't speak German, we didn't speak English, and, and, mm. and I was screaming apparently, because um, I'd lost my doll, and, and it, it was, they were just nightmarish periods. But of course that was the beginning of a period where you, you made an adjustment, you learned the language, you learned to accept what had happened, and in my case I really moved away from my birth parents because when we met again after many years, the, the relationship had been broken. And so I never bonded with them again. I became a dutiful daughter, um, but it was a dutiful, not a loving daughter, because I, I bonded with my foster parents. That must have been... Um, because it, as you're describing, you quickly adapted to this life forming the, all these strong bonds with the UK, with your your family. But you also experienced, as you were growing up in England, you experienced survivor's guilt as a teenager. How did that manifest itself? Well, you would imagine that if you knew that you'd been saved from Nazi Europe and people were actually saying things to you, aren't you lucky to be saved? Aren't you lucky to be saved? And indeed, I was lucky. But um, it's not a healthy thing to say to a five-year-old. Yeah. The recognition that I had to adapt somehow led to this survivor guilt that I had escaped. Um, it was it's quite illogical. You'd think I would have been very happy to be alive. But in fact, I was consumed with guilt. It was as if the, the Nazi horrors were my own. Mm. Um, and... It really took six years of analysis at the renowned Tavistock Clinic in London um, to get me through that. And since then, I must say, I have, have been considering the nasty things that have happened in life and happen in everybody's life. You have your ups and downs. But I, I'm now a very happy person. Yeah. Um, I get sad about something. I'm very sad. My husband has recently died. But I, I'm not depressed and depression, it's this, Churchill described it as the black dog. It hangs over you. And um, that is now in my past, which is good. Oh, it's, I'm enjoying this so much. Thank you again for being on this podcast. Um, at 18, you changed your name from Vera to Stephanie and became a British citizen, fully embracing English life and England as your home. And you have famously said that I decided to make mine a life that was worth saving and that then you've just got to get on with it. 
Tell me about your aspirations then at um, that very early stage, because I know your first job was in the post office, uh, in the post office research centre, helping to build and programme early computers, and that you've had a passion for math. Well, I wanted to be one of the world's greatest mathematicians and solve something called Fermat's Last Theorem, which I think has taken about another 40 years to solve. Um, and it, I soon realised at the age of 18 that, that I hadn't got it in me to contribute to mathematics in that way. Um, but um, I was lucky because the computer industry came along and I was able to move from mathematics to computing, which needed mathematics in the, in the early days. And so I'm classed as a, as a pioneer of computing, and it was purely by chance, really. I was also lucky in that my girls' school, we had unisex schools then, did not have teachers to teach mathematics at any senior level. And um, I desperately wanted to be a mathematician and and. So with, with much fuss, um, they, they were very adaptable and sent me to the boys' school for my maths lesson. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> which, which was which, but, quite... Which can't have been the normal thing to do at that stage, no? No, I, I'd really fought quite hard. And I think this is a, a reminder that, you know, you should fight for the things that you care about and believe in. Um, I recently went back to the town where I had secondary education, Oswald Street, just on the, it's a border town on the, on the border of Wales. I said then how grateful I was to Oswald Street. They, they had honoured me with, with a blue plaque from the, from the county council saying that I had been educated in Oswald Street. And in, in accepting that, I sort of said how insightful the town had been to allow me um, at 11, 12 to go to a boys' school um, in order to get the, the maths tuition that I, that I needed. Um, and it, I think it was f- far-sighted. Um, and I'm extremely grateful to Oswestry, which I, the town I love dearly. Even in this day and age, I don't know if we encounter stories like that. So this is quite an extraordinary, I don't know, the universe working to make sure that you gained that education. And then you found yourself at the post office dealing with computers for the first time. Were you in your sort of playground? Was this just very natural to you? Uh, Perfectly natural, indeed. The computers were very simple. Uh, They were very embryonic. You could see that they had this tremendous potential. You needed mathematics to work on them. Um, when I say they were simple, simple compared with today's um, mammoth supercomputers or the computer that you have in your watch. Yes, um, yes. That, uh, that has the power of what we used to call a supercomputer. It was very different. And I had a wonderful opportunity, really, starting with a, in a... A research station which was full of, of, of research activities, things that nobody else had ever done before. That's the definition of research. And I had such good training there because people had to teach me how to lay out my work neatly so that I didn't make mistakes that were just due to misreading of a figure. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to show me how to do graphs so that they were accurate and what sort of scales to use and what sort of graph paper to use. It's not all just simple squares. And I, I had a, a wonderful opportunity, really, because I was fairly early in the game. When you're early, when you're 
a pioneer, you have the opportunity to make a difference um, because you're doing things that either they work or they don't. And if they work, it's new and it's yours. Yes. You you did that. Right. You you yeah. took that step. It's yours. Might even be called the Steve Shirley theorem or something. Yes. That's really quite um, motivating. And there is a lot of opportunity to address issues in different ways. If somebody's always done it from right to left, then, then suddenly, you know, in a research station, you can do it from left to right and, and, and see what happens. Mm. They sound quite simple techniques, but it allows you to move the science forward. And there's something very satisfactory. I've just, in fact, been looking at some of my old research reports. And I think, my goodness, I don't understand them anymore now. But at the time... They were advanced, they were absolutely new, they were research reports published by the post office. And um, I had a particular interest in the post office research because I met my, my husband there. So he was a physicist and... Uh, Derek. Yes, Derek. He, he, he died a few months ago. I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. He, he was 97, so, you know, it was not unexpected. I mean, I, I met him professionally, and um, that's what often happens. You know, you, we, we were friends before we fell in love. Take me back to when you were at the post office. Um, you encountered, and, and I, I bring this up because I want to talk later on in your story about, obviously, what you go on to develop and the culture that you brought to it. But the starting point, I suppose, and almost for our listeners, giving the sort of taking us back in time into what women needed to deal with was the challenges in workplaces of sexual discrimination and how this was almost a given. It was quite a normal uh, occurrence. Talk to me about that. And and obviously, we're going to move on to what that might have ignited in you. But it is quite shocking. Holly, you would have been absolutely horrified. Um, there were very few women in, in business at all. Uh, there were certain legally things that you could not do. Um, you could not open a bank account. Um, you could not uh, take a higher purchase agreement. You couldn't hire a car. You couldn't work on the stock exchange. These were certain activities were, were barred to women. Women were very much second-class citizens um, at the post office research station, which I loved dearly. And nevertheless, I look back and say there were two pay scales. We were paid by age and grade, which sounds fair enough. Age really shouldn't be, be, be involved, but grades, it makes a lot of sense. But there were two scales, one for men and one lower for women. And I mean, that really sort of ignited my anger. It seemed to me so, so grossly unfair. And the fact that there were so few women around meant that occasionally you got opportunities that other people didn't. I'll talk about those later if you like. Um, but in the main, you were just ignored. You were just patronised. You were not considered for certain things. Um, when I was qualified for promotion, and the senior service is very bureaucratic, uh, when I was qualified, I asked my boss, you know, would he put me up for promotion? And he said, sort of said no. And um, I had to apply as an outside candidate. And then the next promotion, um, they did do internally, um, but a lot of people resigned from the interview panels saying that they would never, ever 
appoint a woman to a graduate position, which is what I was applying for. So you you were battling really legal obstacles uh, as well as cultural ones. Today's women have equal, not equal, but they have comparable difficulties, Mm -hmm. but they're much more cultural. Yes. Um, The law is very much um, protective, um, even on things like um, pregnancy pay and so on. You see, I use a word like protected, and I think that is patronising. Yes. It, it dates from the days then when, when I wasn't supposed to be working on the night shift, or women were not allowed to go down mines, as women as the very much the weaker sex. And you have to be careful how you, you know, you, you take the, the benefits of our gender uh, and, and balance them with, with, with the responsibilities that come with being half of the population. I couldn't agree more. This obviously ignited something in your in your belly and in your heart, and you decided to start a bit of a revolution. And in 1962, you founded Freelance Programmers. And am I right in saying that it was spelt all in lowercase because you had no capital? <laughs> and when we say capital, everybody, we're talking about money. Is this right? Well, we started with six pounds. I just lost um, six pounds. Worth about a hundred pounds in today's currency. Um, and uh, yes, we, we had it in lowercase as a little um, quip, really. A little really. smile, <laughs> yes. a little smile. Well, it was one of the UK's earliest startups and it was completely radical. Writing software, which was an outrageous proposition at the time, certainly for women. You started, as you said, with six pounds. You were working from home. And all of this was at a time when women, as you said before, weren't able to even open a bank account without your husband's permission. Would you do me the honour in telling us, the listeners, about this experience, those early days? And this is, I suppose, when you became known as Steve. Yes, that was a little bit later when I began to be a bit bit more professional. We set up the the idea of selling tailor-made software, uh, not the sort of software packages that we have today, but it was tailor-made for each job. And that in itself was revolutionary. I mean, people just laughed. Why? Because software was given away free with the hardware. It wasn't something that people paid for. Yeah. You can't have somebody selling software, least of all a woman. So I was, I was crashing through some, some, some doors. People remembered me, of course, which is something. And um, you had to struggle later on to make sure that they didn't remember the company's services for who we were rather than from what we could do. Um, so it's not, it's not all honey, you can't play it. But, but in the main, it was a question of, of, of breaking through. Um, we had access. I, I employed, I used, I think I started sort of women returners, women who had retired from the industry um, and in order to have family and, and now wanted to come back and were experienced and, and keen to get back into work, not so much to earn money, but just to remain intellectually active and to remain up to date in their technology. It was a very so-called disruptive little organisation. Yes. People talk about my overnight success, but it was a long, slow burn, Holly. It was 25 years before we paid a puny dividend and... Uh, uh, it was many, many years of struggle before it became uh, in any way professional and medium-sized. Though, of course, 
I wondered about coming on this uh, podcast because you talk about small businesses. I started small, but I didn't stay small. No. The company finished up employing 8,500 people. This is the extraordinary thing. Am I right in saying that the women that you were employing were those with math degrees? As you said, they might have chosen, well, it was just a different era, wasn't it? They've had a family. There wasn't a flexible approach to employment. You allowed people to work from home. You even had tape cassette players. Am I right in saying this? With the sound of typewriters. Okay. I mean, this is genius, by the way. Playing in the background over the kids crying. I mean, it is. And of course, you know, things have changed today. And certainly we'll talk about this later on with the pandemic and how almost family life now is much more allowed within work. You know, we have children coming across our Zooms or whatever we're on. And that's been quite a change. I think it's been really progressive, actually. But you had these typewriter sounds in the background. Did you know that it needs to be created with this female energy? Did you know that there was something about a woman wanting to come back to work and prove that she was more than that, that gave you that added, you know what I'm saying, that added excellence? I think I was absolutely confident about that because I set the company up for me and for women like me. You know, I'm not unique. Uh, If I wanted to go on working, there'd be other women out there. I never had any difficulty recruiting staff because we recruited in different ways through public libraries and doctor's surgeries and things like that, places where women would be, non-working women would be, and might think, oh, yeah, I could go back to work. But the experience of the women that joined me, we used to sort of say the minimum of six years' experience, Mm -hmm. um, and the vast majority were graduates, um, something like 95% were graduates. Um, But what we did was really move um, the culture of business away from presenteeism, where you're paid because you're present and sitting at your desk, to productivity where you're paid according to your your performance and, and, and what you have produced and no matter how much how long a time you've spent on it. And that really was again a revolution in, in, in how modern society views work. Mm. It it's not something that we do when we'd rather to be doing something else. It it's something that, that is part of our activity. It's it integrated into our homes. I almost, I'm just astounded, absolutely astounded with the the way you were looking literally into the future and how difficult it must have been at the time. Because as you said, you were pioneering, you were breaking glass ceilings. This isn't, you know, people were not doing this. I was speaking to Dame Mary Perkins, founder of Specsavers on this podcast, who also was a pioneer for women in business. And all of us have so much to thank the tenacity and bravery for what we as women experience today. But I'll go on to say it's still alive and well, isn't it? That The fact that we're all desperately trying to fit into everything and, and only now I would say are we starting to see what almost you created because you basically pioneered the gig economy before 
we even knew what this word was and you almost were, you were waiting for the world to catch up. And I think the world is finally starting to catch up. Do you think we are now beginning to understand more about these benefits of flexible working or do you still think we've got some way to go? Well, we've got things like just-in-time manufacturing and, and that goes the same way of, of keeping things very flexible um, during the year. Uh, pandemic actually it hasn't worked very well but in, in normal circumstances just in time it's, it's money saving it, it saves time it saves space it saves energy but the whole concept of freelance was considered um, sort of offbeat um, we eventually changed the name and just talked about f f international uh, international meant we had a few people in holland <laughs> <laughs> Just call yourself Steve and put the word international into anything and uh, watch what happens. I think because we were really <laughs> fighting, and it, it was a battle in the early days, um, we went out of our way to make sure we were absolutely professional, we were absolutely qualified, and that the work when we produced did not look as if the cat had just walked over it. Mm. Um, it was professional. We, we got professional typists in. I remember we had a team of 16 typists with, with the same typewriters so that they could do reports together and things like that. Image is very important in business. And if you let it become sloppy or look amateur in any way, I don't think we would have made it. You also had a husband and wife team come to you, didn't you? And they asked if they could share their job. And you thought, well, why not? It just makes common sense. I mean, when you made those decisions as the boss, did you go with your gut instinct a lot? Did you like to break rules and try things? Yes, I, I like things that are new, sometimes just because they're new, which is, which is a danger. But I was very keen on flexibility. I actually spell freedom with a capital F. It really means something to me because of my history, I think. Um, and, and for women to be free to do, uh, to develop themselves and their, their own personalities became very important to me. At the same time, I, I don't like failure. I, I like to succeed. I like to be first. But um, the thought of failure with my company was absolutely overwhelming. Because if I failed, all those women would also mm. fail and, and the whole concept would be discredited. So I was highly motivated. And I do think in business, you know, you can give people tools, you can give people more time, you can increase the, the main thing that, that makes things happen is motivation. Energy, motivation. And I suppose for you, you had a purpose, as you said, you, you were doing this for far greater than yourself you you now had a these group of women that were relying on you i mean you were challenging sexual discrimination employment law social convention in this radical way did it feel like you were on a crusade oh yes i i actually used that word holly it was a crusade <laughs> but a crusade for for women for women for women oh for yeah women and you wanted to build this female culture to do things differently. You know, there were very, very few women in business, as you said before, that were successful around you. What is a female culture? And I ask actually personally as well, I've gone on to my second business, Holly & Co. And 
we are building a culture and I think it is very feminine and I feel incredibly empowered by it and I I don't want to uh, shy away from it. I actually want to go into it even more. So from someone who is building something at the moment, what is a female culture and and would you say we shouldn't shy away from it? A female culture, in one word, I think is holistic. It's not just concerned with making profit, though you have to make profit. It's not just concerned with keeping the cash flow positive, but you have to keep it positive. It's not just concerned with team working, though that is effective, but it's really looking at the whole entity as a living, loving thing that that that, that you can grow and meld um, and look after the teams as well as the the customers your teams are so valuable that if you really care for them and look after them and be a, a generous employer i think you get repaid over and over and over again there are plenty of people who like to work in what might be considered a feminine way the management books talk now about the feminization of management worldwide and that is again the simple thing. It's not just people are not just looking at the bottom line; um, they're looking at a double bottom line, which is finance and staff awareness, social benefit, shall we say? And some companies are now talking about a triple bottom line, um, which is the, the the financial results, the social benefits, um, and the environmental impact. Now, this is looking at business in a very different way to just sort of saying the whole purpose of business is to make the maximum money for the shareholders. Are you proud of where business is going? Yes, I'm, 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 I'm disappointed in a way, Holly, how long it has taken. Yes. I mean, I really started working from home in a sort of professional level and I was breaking new ground in how to ensure people working from home and how, how, how to make sure that they were sitting, you know, in the right sort of chair and were not breaking their backs, sitting at a typewriter at the wrong level and stuff like that. So to care for your staff when you don't actually see them. And we didn't see each other. We wore little badges so that if we were going to see a customer, we would recognise, oh, yes, that must be Mary Smith, um, because we'd worked together for months perhaps, but had never actually met. <laughs> and you knew people's voices and you knew something about their uh, character, but you didn't know whether this, what sounded like a dumb blonde, was actually a severe, sleek, sophisticated woman. <laughs> had lots and lots of surprises. Did you ever get them together? Did you have... Um... Those moments, because I can only imagine what it would be like if you had. We did have meetings um, in various groups uh, from time to time, but they were very rare because they were expensive. Basically, people joined us because they wanted to work from home. We had, we called them free speaks, where I and senior colleagues would talk to largish groups as to where the company was going and what we were trying to do and what the difficulties were and what likely things were going to happen. We'd also sort of celebrate being together. Uh, we had a wonderful celebration after 25 years, and it was just wonderful. We're working with our partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. 
Every week, we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey, covering a huge range of topics. Here I am talking to Sandra Byrne, the manager of Lush Liverpool Spa, about how she leads her business from the heart. Oh, it's all about the people. That's what it is. I don't put the business forward. I don't think about the profits. I think about the people. And I've done this for such a long time. It's just so refreshing that it's now accepted in the business world. Yes. And I think we were back 10 years ago. People would say I was away with the fairies. Yeah. You know, when it was all about... Or worse. Hey? Yes. Or, or look at it as a female quality and Absolutely. something that we're not very great at business about or we're too emotional. We put, you know, and now finally people have caught yeah. up. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So it's always been about the people for me, Holly, whether it's the staff whether it's the community whether it's the customers coming through the door even my staff we talk a lot about paradigms and how we don't know what's going on in each other's lives and in the customers lives so how important it is to be kind for the latest lessons advice and insights visit holly.co slash hub for my business advice hub a free online resource thanks to Dell Technologies filled with content from myself and some of our small business community, sharing lessons from our journeys to help you navigate yours. And with a continued commitment to empower you, every week Dell are giving away one tech in a box. For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co slash get involved with thanks to Dell Technologies. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Your team of women initially started tackling commercial things like stock control, and then they went on to achieve some remarkable accomplishments. Among them, I mean, this is just blows it. This is where my husband just asked me to repeat it again this morning, including programming the black box flight recorder for Concord. What a moment that must have been. But it's actually crazy to think that when, you know, I started not in the high street in 2006, a woman starting a tech business still was not the norm. And you paved the way for myself and for future generations. As you said, you've employed eight and a half thousand people. Uh, the business was valued at nearly three billion dollars. It is completely staggering what you have created. But then you took the company into co-ownership, ultimately making 70 employees who helped to build the business into millionaires. Another extraordinary forward-thinking thing to do. What was that experience like? And was that what you would put down to the female culture again, where you wanted to share the success? After the 70s recession, which I had found very difficult because I had no idea really about how, how to run a business in the early days, I was conscious that the only reason we had survived was because everybody had rallied together um, had trusted me to pay them rather slowly, but they, they did all get paid. Uh, but I was paying very slowly. I just said, couldn't, it was that or nothing. And it seemed to me that um, I should be sharing the profits as well as the difficulties. Uh, the profits were not great, but they were potential profits. 
Um, can I go back, though, Holly, to yes. talk about the sort of work that we did? Please. I was a, a mathematician, and so the work started off as being scientific work, the sort of things that I, well, I did the first few projects. But then the, the, the market was commercial, and people really wanted to uh, uh, do things like payroll, and, 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 and I found this excruciatingly boring, and some of my colleagues did as well. Um, so we went for a happy compromise for operational research work, uh, which brought in things like stock control, which was scientific stock control was just coming in at the time. So we did masses of stock control, you know, everything from giant rolls of cable, you know, rolls as big as a house, mm. uh, to tiny tubs of ice cream, which, which melt as well as anything else. So we tried to adapt to the market and we were market-facing and looking back, it seems all very clever, but there was a lot of trial and error. You know, I read a lot about business. I tried to be professional about it, but there was a lot of trial and error. If something, you know, I follow the scientific method. If something works, I do more of it. If something doesn't, I stop it and do something else. And this was, I suppose, the moment what you, we go back to the naming yourself Steve. I suppose at that time, trying to get the jobs, trying to describe what you did to people not only were you a female and you had a female workforce but also actually what you were actually creating was so new did you ever get worried about you know what you were dreaming up would never come to fruition I got worried about things like you know the Concord project crashing or something due to a mistake in software because that's what software does it it, it is all consuming and um, I'd took limited liability company um, status because of that. Or previously that, we'd, we'd just been trading without the limited liability. Um, but I like to do new things. I like to make new things happen. Um, and uh, that hasn't really changed. I don't think I've changed all that much. I'm much more experienced now. I'm much steadier. I don't... I've never really panicked, but... Um, I, I can remember during one recession, sort of sitting, rocking in my lounge at home, sort of, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What what can I do? What can I do? Um, and, and, and then eventually, of course, you do f come across things that you can do and, 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 and start to act and, and give the impression that um, the business is buoyant. Nobody gives business to a company because it needs business. And that's a bitter lesson. They give business to companies that are doing well and that are, can show continuity. And so it did become a, easier over the years. 45 years is quite a long time for an organisation to endure. Yes. Although I was disappointed when it was finally taken over. It's now part of the Sopra Steria Group. Uh, it still has co-ownership in it. But I was disappointed in a way. But 45 years is considered a long lifetime. Absolutely, absolutely. Tell me, because this really made me smile. You also explained in a talk that I listened to you giving on YouTube why all ambitious women have flat heads. And it might, made me laugh so much. Can you just share with the listeners why us women have flat heads? Well, not all women have flat heads, but you can distinguish them. The ones with flat heads are flat on the top, uh, not at the side, flat on the top. 
And that is not from hitting the glass ceiling, but from men patronizing us and patting us on the head saying, there, there, dear. <laughs> we, I just need to keep looking out for these women. This is our common denominator. I wanted to ask you about the pandemic and the changes that we've seen in society, in women particularly, encountered during the last two years, emotional labour, homeschooling, elderly parents. I mean, these things, some of these things were before the pandemic, but it seemed to have really sort of, I don't know, come together during this time. And I know that the data from the UN Women suggests that the pandemic could have taken gender equality back 25 years. I saw that report and I thought, yeah, I fear it has. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I was pretty horrified in the UK that the gender pay gap reporting was waived, which was mandatory, was waived during the uh, uh, pandemic as if it was not important. And I thought that sort of shows a lot about how people feel about uh, women being underpaid. Women certainly got the brunt of, um, there were more pro rata uh, who lost their jobs or were mm -hmm. uh, furloughed. There were. Um, and when it came to homeworking, it, it accentuated um, the extra work that they do at the domestic level. In particular, they did the bulk of the home homeschooling, um, which should have been shared between parents if, if, if it is a two-parent family. Can I ask, why, why do you think that is? Oh. Is it because... It's still that the male job is more important or the male employee did not, you know, because if ultimately, if you're a husband and wife team, the employee of the man should have also been aware of the situation of families. It may be also that the men push more. Women, we tend to stand back, we... we think, oh, I'll wait until it's my turn. We're, we are much more modest in our... I know this is a stereotype, um, but so is it, is it a stereotype that the men put more emphasis on their employment. That is statistically no longer true, that the, the male earnings are always the prime earner of the family. Um, there are many, many cases now where those financial aims are, are shared, and some cases where the woman is definitely the, the prime breadwinner. But it's, it's extraordinary that this has still happened. Do you think we'll take lessons from this? Well, history shows that people don't learn very much from those lessons. Yes. And if you think about what happened to women after the Great War, the First World War, where they had been doing all sorts of jobs during that time, and, and they all stepped right back to their little home uh, environment uh, immediately afterwards. Something similar happens in the Second World War, and I think you can see the same thing in a pandemic. During a crisis, um, everybody pulls together mm -hmm. and, and women are accepted as, as, as being yes. part of that um, relief force or whatever it might be. Once it's over, it, that all that drops away. Um, so people are intrinsically selfish and... and once you've got a leadership that is uh, predominantly male, as we have at the moment, leaders determine the, who will be the leaders in the future. And so it tends to remain male. It's, it's quite an effort to push back 
and say, no, 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 we're going to have it different in the future. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I, I hope we do learn a lot of lessons. But as you said, time will tell. I wanted to touch on going back to those early years, um, because during this time, your much longed for son, Giles, was born with severe autism. And uh, Giles had some exceptional needs. And at the time, you were obviously establishing your world-class software company. You must have been under enormous pressure, not only as a businesswoman, but as a mum. What was this time like? Pretty horrendous, really. It was pressurised. My husband and I ran a sort of shift system um, because... Charles didn't sleep very much and so and he needed constant attention and care. So it, it, it was difficult. I think sometimes one sort of cheated a bit and when I was perhaps reading a book to Giles, I might have been actually thinking about what I was going to do about a bit of software that I'd got into difficulty with. <laughs> so I think, you know, you'd have to... I tried to be absolutely full on of whatever I was doing. Certainly, the only time that I forgot work was when I was with Giles. And the only time I forgot him was when I was working. So for many, many years, the two sort of pressures balanced each other out quite happily, really. But eventually, I did have a breakdown, good old-fashioned nervous breakdown, off work for a year, uh, quite serious. And I realised I just couldn't do that. Since then, Holly, I have been much more... I talk to other women about being selfish about themselves, to look after themselves, not to let that happen to them, that they're so stressed out that they really um, can't cope anymore. And that healthy selfishness is is something that women have to be very conscious mm. of. I think we also have to be very aware that our physique is different to men. And we have to look after that. We have to eat well. We have to make sure that we exercise, with, that we don't smoke too much and all those sorts of things. Um, but basically that we keep ourselves fit, fit to do the job, fit to look after our families and fit to look after ourselves. Absolutely. I'm so sad that Giles passed away in 2015 and I'm so sorry for your loss and the unimaginable pain that you must have experienced you went on to set up a charity and foundation to support those with autism. And you're also working to help those people with autism into the workplace. And I've learned so much lately myself about neurodiversity. I just recently interviewed Dr. Willard Wigan. He's creator of the world's smallest micro sculptures. And uh, I'll make sure I send it uh, a link to you. He's unbelievable, but he wasn't diagnosed until later in life. But he always knew he was different. Different. And yes. ultimately, it was actually that difference, though, that enabled him to create something no one else could. Do you think that we're going to see a shift in embracing neurodiversity as a sort of superpower in the future? It certainly has started. I'm not sure about the superpower bit, but everybody is now aware that diversity really leads to innovation. It leads to a balanced team and multiplies significantly the output of a group. We talk about having outliers. They don't have to be full-blown autistic people. but We want different people. We want somebody who's good at sharing. We want somebody who's good at blue sky thinking. We want somebody who, who's, who's prepared to slog through all the, all the 
arithmetic. I think people are beginning to be much more accepting of difference and valuing difference. And and how much better off we'll be as organisations. Um, we're coming towards the end, but I, I wanted to ask you, you officially retired in 1993, but I know you're a great believer, as I am. I famously say I want to retire at 90, is that I'm thinking that you also uh, like to work. So I think you still work seven days a week. Is that right? Giving back to society? Yeah, I, I, try, I try to keep the weekends a bit clearer, but I still do work to catch up on the weekends. I probably do a short week, short A short, short week day. by having a mm. bit of a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> you, your energies have been dedicated to philanthropy for many years now. And I read one of the most beautiful quotes of yours. And um, you said, the emptier your stomach, the more love you have in your heart. So I finished up as a philanthropist and have given away, not that you said this in the same quote, but I'm now saying to our listeners, nearly £70 million, leaving this lasting legacy what motivates your philanthropic desires? Very simple things, Holly. I want to um, justify my survival. There's a remnant of that. I'm left with that. Um, I want to make the world a better place. And those two together are enough to drive me. Simple and beautiful. This has been the most wonderful conversation. I never want it to end, but I'm going to at least let you leave and, and carry on with your no doubt busy working day. But I always ask these couple of questions at the end of my interviews. If running a business is like being on an epic roller coaster, and I'm sure you can take yourself back to the, you know, lurching lows and the highs where the wind's in your hair and you feel so female and empowered, uh, what would you say has been one of your biggest lows on that journey? I think it's always people. Um, I had a breakaway group very early on in the company, someone who I admired, I'd worked with, I suggested that she come in as a partner. So it wasn't just a colleague. She was quite close. And she set up in competition to me. And I found that absolutely hurtful personally and debilitating. Um, and it took me a long, long time to get over. And, you know, here am I still talking about it. I still remember how awful I felt about it. I can empathise with that. And did you ever keep in contact with her? No. Did, did, <laughs> no. No. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and conversely, the greatest high? Oh, that I'm quite, quite clear about. I did take the company into co-ownership, not as much far as I would have liked, but uh, I took it up to 62% control with 24% um, ownership. And I'm enormously proud of that. And when that happened, when it tipped over that the workforce really controlled the company, it wasn't me. I was thrilled to bits. It was lovely. It, it is my greatest achievement, really. Amazing. It's been such an honour to talk to you today. And I think you're going to be one of those podcasts I just play on a sort of weekly basis and, and scribble <laughs> down. And, and, and the team will say, don't tell me. Not another Dame Steve quote, Holly. And I'm like, yes, 
There is another one. So you will be played at Holly & Co on a constant loop. Um, Your story is profound as a woman in business, and I'm just grateful. Your groundbreaker, your trailblazer, um, all when sort of these words are used nowadays, but you did this for us a long time ago. Thank you for joining me today and sharing it with us all. Um, I'm going to ask you, if okay with you, that you read a letter that you prepared to your younger self. I don't know what it's going to say, and it's one of those moments in the podcast where I hand over to you, but it's been such a great honour. Thank you very much, Holly. It's been uh, really good to think about what Holly and Co are going to be like. Thank you. Gosh, coming from you. (laughs) So I write to my younger self. My dearest Vera... I write your name in recollection of the frightened little girl who grew into the adult Stephanie Shirley, better known as Steve Shirley, me. As a part Jewish crossbreed, the insulting term used by Hitler, your future in Germany looks grim. But you will be saved by the Kindertransport, that remarkable, somewhat improvised rescue effort which will bring thousands of mainly Jewish children, to safety in Britain in 1938 and 39. So keep firm hold of your big sister as you travel together to a new future. Survivors are the people who count. And know that pain allows you to grow. Be brave and keep cheerful, little Vera. The worst didn't happen. Your new parents will love you as they would their own. They will help you find your place in the world. Remember that you are unique, just like everyone else. Take no notice of what adults say, but rather learn by observing what they do. Be confident. Have confidence in yourself. And if you focus on the sort of person you want to become, You don't need to worry about what you're going to do when you grow up. Happy times will come again. Things will get better. But happiness will elude you if you pursue it too keenly. And happiness is temporary. It's the joy that comes from within that is lasting. I promise you, promise cross my heart, that you will find true joy with a good man and your life together will be diverse and rich in experience. Stay true to your sunny self and all will be well. Thank you very, very much. Got a bit of a frog in my throat uh, listening to that. Woo! I know everyone that's listening right now just thanks you for all that you've done and your wise words that you've shared with us today. And um, thank you for being a beacon. It's just such an honour, absolute honour, one of my greatest, actually, to have spoken to you today. You're very kind. I've much enjoyed our meeting, Holly. Thank you. Before you go, don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? 
Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.